I looked into recursion schemes the other day and uh, it's all Greek to me. So, system design. I've been uh, trying to do some... I've not really been trying to designing systems. I've been mostly looking at systems and working with the systems and feeling the pain. You've been coping with system design that someone else did. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm not really sure if they actually did the sign or if they just did a system. Uh, so the main idea behind the system I'm using is that it's eventually consistent on a good day. It never retries things because that's... It's kind of hard to have a good retry mechanism, I think. Or it's at least harder than just pub-subbing the heck out of the network and then hoping for the best. Uh, and uh, it doesn't do transactions because RethinkDB doesn't have transactions. And also because they probably didn't feel like transactions was that important and didn't bother implementing them. Because, of course, you can build transactions on top of anything. You just have to shake a lot of hands back and forth. Like double-sided commits and stuff. Yeah. Now, the, the, to their defense, the system they had for the needs they had probably worked better than the system we have now for the needs we have now. Oh, yeah. I, I think it was... Like, the design seems all right. Uh, it's a weird mix of kind of overcomplicated and at the same time kind of pragmatically simple. Like, I'm familiar with that system. Yeah. And I think one of the key sort of design features was that we need to capture all the data about what's happening. So it's kind of event source, but not really. <laughs> and I don't know if they have, if it's like event source, the good parts, or just event source, the parts we built. I'm thinking it's eventually sourced, which I don't think is the good way of doing event sourcing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so let me tell you about how uh, the backend and uh, mobile phone app communicates. I don't know if you've ever looked into that. A little bit, but I don't have it top of mind. Yeah. On the mobile phones, there's a React Native app. So far, so standard. React Native is... An interesting beast. If I actually knew it properly, I could probably say something nuanced about it. But it's it gets you there. And that's good. But it's also a disappointment to work with because it's easier to work with the web than with, than with app development or for Android development. And I suppose it's more a wrapper around Android development than web development. Anyway, so the idea there is that in the back end, if you want something to happen on the front end, you update the object you want to change on the front end. And then magically, the diff is sent to the front end that then checks if this object is the current well, agent thing like driver or customer or whatever. Yeah, it's like, oh, this, if it's just the, one of your customers, it's like the user state. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so if it's the user actually used in the app, actually connected to the current app, something happens. It listens to stuff. And 
this is fascinating because this means that there's a very hard coupling. No, not hard. Tight. What's the opposite of loose in this context? <laughs> so uh, firm or... Uh, is it firm almost, coupling? Yeah, I think a firm or... Yeah. Tight. Tight is also fine. Like, yeah, I think tight is probably what you're... They're tightly coupled, yeah. That's probably what you'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Which means that you cannot really... If you anywhere in backend update the user object, you must check this with the app before you deploy anything. Because otherwise, exciting things could happen in a bad way. Oh, the app makes assumptions about kind of what the data model of the user is. So yes. even adding a field could be a problem? Uh, no, because it has it's developed defensively in that regard. Yeah, because that's kind of what I would expect, like changing the data model could screw it up. Yeah. But yeah, your internal representation of the user is is also your API too. Because everything is just passing around, not quite JSON, but honestly, it's JSON. Uh, yeah. It's just like maps, dictionaries, hash maps, whatever you want to call them. Uh, in Elixir, they're maps. Uh, and just passing those around and occasionally turning them into JSON and sending them over the wire. Yes, and the fascinating and actually quite cool part of this is that if you're a true uh, full-stack developers, you have Android Studio or whatever you use for React Native on one monitor, and you have uh, Elixir in VS Code on the other monitor, and you type with both your hands on two keyboards, this makes you really productive. But as soon as you involve a front-end person mm. or as soon as you want to make some refactoring on the back end things slow down to a crawl also there's a different uh, deployment cad- cadence uh, to the back end and the front end i think we're doing sneaky things which makes us uh, which let us deploy the front end much faster than we otherwise could but it's still much slower than 20 minutes mm. so yeah, system design. Yeah. And in many ways, I think they, they made some interesting and useful choices. It's like, no, no, we'll we'll send this date out to the user. It's the same as in the back end. Very few things to think about. They're kind of choosing convention over explicit contracts and saying, yeah, this is the shape of the data. Deal with it. But they, there is no API in between that will say, oh, this is an error. This is not the proper shape of the data, yada, yada, yada. It's just like, oh, the backend changed. I hope the app kept up. Oh, yep. the app changed. <laughs> I hope that matches the change in the backend. And top of mind, like for the app that it is, I don't think it needed to be quite so eventy. Indeed. It could have still been event sourced, but it could have been event sourced in a kind of in the boring transactional way where you where you could properly commit one event uh, and then you boil some data off of that. Yeah, so you have a listener that sends stuff to the app. And it's like, oh, time to denormalize again, uh, and then you send some state to the app. Like a, a typical event sourcing approach would have worked. This is something kind of in betweeny. So any update to the data is you do a merge on the data 
and then you broadcast it over PubSub. And that's also kind of stored in, in the event source-ish data like BigQuery or something, right? Yes. It goes off to the Googles. Um, yeah, the Googles. But it's also persisted in the kind of source of truth, mostly source of truth, which is the database. We have uh, 1.5 source of truths, I think. Oh. Are any of them a full source of truth? And then no. the other one is a half, or are they like 75% each? Yeah, and I think they vary how much source of truth. Oh, no. Uh, so, <laughs> to make it more exciting, because we have the cache, which is implemented on top of Amnesia. Yeah, so the, I, I don't count the cache as a source of truth. You could kind of maybe ignore the cache uh, well, and still ha- talk about the system. Yeah. Uh, mm. Almost. Mm, let uh, me let maybe. me tell you about the cache. Uh, so, the idea here is when something is going to be persisted, we first look up the current state of that thing in the cache. If that thing doesn't exist in the cache, we check it in the database and then uh, write it to the cache and then get it from the cache. And then we deep merge the new state with the old state or we deep merge the changes with the current state of things. Yeah, you essentially apply the changes onto the previous state, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's um, map merge semantics, good stuff. And then we send the new changes, we save them to the cache and the database. Mm. So this means that if the cache and database get out of sync, but the object is still in the cache, very interesting things could happen. Yeah, I can see that. Also, uh, we relied heavily on dirty reads and dirty writes and everything dirty in Amnesia before, because I think they're faster. I don't know how much, because I never bothered to do any performance tests, but... It made me, made me uneasy, so I uh, rewrote it to use the boring transactional ones. That There are apparently many, many versions of the transactional ones, and the one I settled for, we'll see if this will come back and bite me, but there's one where all the nodes that run Amnesia must have replied with, I will update this object, I promise, uh, before you let go of the, before you stop, before Amnesia stops blocking. Mm. And that's the one I uh, chose. And there's another even more safe one where they will block until they've said, okay, it's updated. Okay. And also the database we're using, why we're doing it in this order, I think, is because the database we're using is, it will say, okay, I'm done before it has actually written everything. So uh, you don't have a read-after-write consistency. Oh, it's an optimist. Yeah, I, I love... Op- no, I'm not... I don't like optimists at all. It's just painful and horrible, actually. I don't think I like optimistic databases. <laughs> <laughs> I like optimism. But- yeah, but I don't know if I like it in people because 
they'll have the same semantics as a database. <laughs> they'll say, ah, oh, it will be fine, and then it won't be fine because they've forgotten something they were supposed to. And I thought we out. were friends. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's why I'm saying 1.5 source of truths. Yeah. It's probably not as bad as I'm making it sound, but it's interesting. And especially when the system comes under load and the ordering of events becomes very important, then all kinds of shenanigans happen. Hmm. So, yeah, don't design a system like that. Okay, and then, so the uh, database has said, okay, I'm going to do something with this. Then we uh, send the message to all subscribers, and one of them is a gen server, I think, that sends stuff over WebSockets to all the apps. So that's cool. But it only sends the diff. It doesn't send the new state, which means that if you get the messages in the wrong order, you can get a very interesting broken state. That's fun. Yeah, because... Also, because we don't have any kind of guarantees for message ordering. Yeah, yeah, there's no ID you could look at or anything like that. Yeah. This is what, like when talking about distributed systems and similarly just general system design, it takes a bit before you realize like the most useful property of a server is total ordering. Or at least partial ordering. But total is very good. Well, isn't it like uh, Postgres, for example? Mm-hmm. That system gives you total ordering, right? Yeah, it does. Unless I'm misunderstanding anything. Like the the write-ahead log is created and it is produced in a particular order. You know what happened first. The database decides even if things come in at this, roughly the same time, it will decide like this one came in first. I'll treat this as the first one. And... We've had uh, so a system I'm working on for a client. We have some collaboration features, and they're simple enough that we can essentially just pass in like, oh, this was added, and this was added, and then this was added, and this was moved, this was changed. Uh, small kind of messages, deltas is what we call them. But fundamentally, whenever a session is working on, like one collaboration session is up and running, we try to make sure that we're only running one um, gen server as the session, and then we're using the gen server for ordering. Now, we are also relying on Postgres for persisting, so we can kind of enforce the ordering with Postgres. We could have a failure mode where like, oh, one of the nodes, or uh, essentially if the nodes split, we could end up with two gaming sessions, like the, and the collaboration would be kind of broken. They would probably be experiencing some weirdness, but it's not that the at a scale where we really have to be overly concerned about it. Uh, and the data wouldn't be corrupt; it would just be weird, or the experience would be weird. Uh, but we wouldn't lose anything because Postgres and append only <laughs> append only helps. Very good. But the whole point of the Gen server there is to provide an order that we can't break, like. Things arrive in an order, we give them a number, we pass we pass them out to the rest of all the collaborators, and they can use that ordering information 
to sort the events that have happened and apply them in the same order so we get consistent results. That's really good. Yeah. Um, we're thinking of adding some kind of counter to the messages to the apps and maybe from the apps to just have something. And But it's also a bottleneck. Like you cannot effectively order things like there are things for for distributed ordering that's usually not for actually placing them in a perfect order but more for ensuring that whatever order you derive is consistent and doesn't shift around well we do have have some things talking in our favor favor uh, because there's one gen server per or one process per uh, connected app uh, they will stick to the same node, at least until they break connection. Yeah, I think they will stick to the same. Yeah, node. that's a nice thing about web sockets. <laughs> yeah, so good because then we can we can have a counter in that process that goes up, and when the app starts to have gaps in the counter, receiving like message seventeen and then twenty five, or even better, receiving message twenty five and then twenty one. Mm. It could go, this is bad. I'm now gonna reconnect. So I get a fresh dump of all the current states. Yeah. It could also of course go be more intelligent about it and say, Hey, I just received message seventeen. Could you please send message 18 to 25 please but then we need to have some kind of store it in the back end so it's much easier to to restart everything let it crash so yeah web sockets are quite nice yeah they are one tricky thing about web sockets is like they're not perfect for mobile they work like but occasionally mobile means you also shift networks and when you shift networks you have to detect that the uh, the WebSocket is no longer working and then reconnect with a new one, like shifting between uh, mobile and Wi-Fi, for example, or shifting, accidentally shifting like a mobile zone and something funky happens on your... Or just having poor connectivity. Like, like I, I would love to see how much better of an experience one could make with if building on Quick, like HTTP3, which you know is a different protocol level than HTTP one and two. Is that the connectionless one? So the the weird one is yes, it, it is kind of connectionless because it's UDP. Yay! Uh, but it also re-implements a bunch of TCP style stuff on top of UDP because they do need to know kind of. Oh, this this is in response to this, and yada yada yada. And I think they, I don't know how much of TCP they re-implemented on top, but some of it, huh? Not all of it, hopefully. But UDP should be a better fit for for mobile in general. Yeah, I think that's one of the really funny things that TCP works quite well within its working well window. This is a term of art. Yeah, I've heard it many times. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but when, when uh, uh, things go outside of the working well window, one usually has to implement uh, the parts of TCP that one really likes uh, to express it in a mathematical way, on top of UDP, of course. So 
I think TCP behaves really strangely in server words today are hard. You know a place where lots of servers congregate? Data centers? Yes. A data center of servers. It's one of those, uh, oh no, I don't remember what they're called. Plural forms. Plurals. Yeah. It's like a murder of crows. Exactly. A crash of servers, it should be. I think it's technically just a rack, honestly, but... Yeah, that too. Okay, yeah, TCP I... behaving in data centers. <laughs> it, it apparently doesn't behave very well in data centers because the connections are so good and the congestions aren't... They aren't happening in the way that TCP is built to handle. TCP is built to handle kind of bad connections. Yeah. Uh, over long distances while this is good connections but loads of data on short distances i might even have a source for this or it's just something i've made up i don't know yeah, but i've heard similar things like the congestion control in tcp is like useful but it's not quite optimally designed and it's been similar with buffer sizes in network gear for a long time yeah and in computers in general, like, oh, how big should the network buffer be? Well, the network is slow, you know, so it should be pretty big. How big could we get away with? How big solves our problems? Well, the buffer also slows down, slows things down, and it's like decreases efficiency. So buffer sizes have to go lower to get more throughput and more better latencies and that kind of thing. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if the congestion protocols are really good over Wi-Fi or if they get confused there too. They might be bad for different reasons. Yeah. Like Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi is a bad connection, but it's also it also plays by kind of different rules in many ways. Yeah. Maybe we need a new TCP with uh, pluggable congestion protocols or congestion algorithms. So that people get to negotiate the congestion algorithm. Yes. And then I can pick the worst one and pwn the router. Yeah, yeah, that seems useful. Oh, it's it's um, my plan to become a real supervillain, you know. I spoke to someone at the Elixir conference who plays around a lot with network stuff, or he works a lot with network stuff. And he, we ended up in a discussion about kind of other protocols, other network protocols than TCP and UDP. And there have been many designs, and some of them would probably be really good, but it's essentially hopeless to try to get uh, adoption because you need to be supported in all routers. Oh, then it seems like a nice hack to base your protocol on UDP. Yeah, but if you want properties that UDP doesn't have... Good point. So I think uh, generally you would need to build on UDP. And I think that's why Quick is the way it is. So they wanted features from UDP. Or rather, they wanted to get rid of features from TCP that were causing uh, limitations. So they built whatever they needed on top of UDP because it is less limited in that regard. And it's less stateful. They can build the statefulness back in if need be. But they can't get rid of the statefulness of TCP. Exactly. On the web, this is kind of annoying, uh, and membrane is kind of solving it. Hopefully, hopefully the the general case of like UDP in the browser will actually be tackled okay by membrane eventually. Right now, they're so focused on media, but it's this whole thing. Like, if you want a web browser to talk UDP style to something, 
your only choice is WebRTC. And WebRTC is kind of overcomplicated. Yeah, it's an RTC. They are. I think it comes with uh, the RTC-ness. So it's not an RFC. No, it's a remote... Wait, I thought it was PC. It's TC. Yeah. Okay, what does WebRTC mean? Uh, So that's what people use for teleconferencing, like Zoom and all of these are built on WebRTC. Interesting. So it's a data channel for real-time communication capabilities. Yeah. So it it stands for Web Real-Time Communication. Cool. And fundamentally, like you can open... Uh, you can open a like a camera stream or a audio stream or both, and then you can find other peers, and then you can send it to them. And if you want to find peers, you need a what is it? A stun and a turn server, which are like I think the stun is for both are for kind of signaling and having peers find each other and kind of NAT traversal. But uh, essentially, one of them will just help people find each other. And the other one, I think, will breach NAT. Uh, and that one might even have to kind of proxy to to send data, which is inefficient, but sometimes the only option. But it's built on UDP. So you can do... Uh, we could, assuming we find a way to exchange our peering information, connect our two browsers to each other and stream data. Primarily, it's built for video and audio, like media. Uh, but there is a kind of miscellaneous data channel uh, implementation in there, in there as well. So you can si- send chats or whatever you want, honestly. I think WebTorrent is implemented with WebRTC to some extent, or to a, to a large extent, because that's the only way to do peering in the browser. Sweet. So you could implement the network code for Doom on WebRTC and play Doom in your browser. Someone must have done that already. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, so WebRTC is super interesting. And in some ways, like it would be the ideal thing to do to, well, to get UDP and get all the all the perks of like less stateful connectivity. But it's a little bit complicated, <laughs> to say the least. Because uh, essentially, if your server wants to talk to a client, you need an a WebRTC client on your server. And I don't think there is one for Erlang or Elixir currently. That's strange because Ericsson was one of those who developed WebRTC. Maybe Ericsson isn't the one-to-one fit with Erlang, I just realized. Yeah, they might have done it in C++. Yeah, me. Meh. <laughs> they should have used Crumble. Erlang. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, WebRTC is super cool. You can do a ton of fun stuff with it, but it is also so complicated that most people don't. Wow. Or it's kind of annoying. Um, there, you don't really get away from the you need a server dealio. You can keep it pretty thin, kind of just signaling server, but you don't get away from it. So, yeah, don't yeah. build your systems around it just yet. Just yet. Well, it's plenty mature. I mean, all the all of the video conferencing that we use day to day is WebRTC. Like, there's no one doing it in a, any different way. Well, asterisk. <laughs> so, at a certain scale, so if you're doing a call with like hundreds of people, I think all of those are WebRTC streams typically. 
into a central server but then they are generally like composed on the server or at least uh, dealt with on the server and then cdn out and stuff like probably with uh, http live streaming or possibly that the server is doing webrtc to all of them but generally they people try to make it more efficient that sounds like a way too exciting distributed systems problem yeah i think it's generally as undistributed as possible yeah yeah <laughs> so because i think it's after like 20 people or or so peered but but it's like after you start building up a decently sized group peering video and audio becomes really inefficient because everyone needs to send all of it to everyone else yep or rather they need to send their video to to all of these sources and many like residential for example uh, connections many company connections as well business accounts uh can't deal with all that bandwidth and don't wanna so you stream it to one server and that server uh, streams it to everyone else yeah so instead of having to send n squared data you have to receive uh let's see well i think you just end up sending uh, receiving n and then uh, then there's a bunch of different strategies for what you actually end up sending. Yeah. Uh, so the end user sends one, gets one. The server receives n and sends n. So I suppose it's, much. instead of n squared, it's 2n. But it also does only needs to process n into one. Yeah. So. Oh, the good stuff. Yeah. Like single points, uh, bottlenecks. Total ordering is useful. Yeah. Because that's, well, there's that moment where you know what you have and you can do things, make decisions based on it. Uh, like my talk at ElixirConf, I was doing, so I was doing live transcription. And ideally, I would like to have cut the edges of like the transcription on silence. So let's say I, I had a 200 millisecond silence. Like that's a good time to wrap up that sentence or if i at least give a second of silence that then it should definitely like wrap up that same sentence and send it to transcription no reason to wait for like a full five second chunk if i'm taking a big break this is trickier than one would think it's like oh but just check when the microphone is quiet for one thing it was at a conference the microphone was not very quiet but microphones in general are not quiet they are slightly fluctuating constantly <laughs> yes and it's not like there's a zero really there's a zero ish yeah anything at this range could be considered zero at this gain setting at yada 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 it's it's a little bit complicated like there there is a zero level but it's never there <laughs> is, is what i've seen yeah. like okay if i mute the mic uh, digitally sure then it starts sending zeros probably or rather 128 or whatever <laughs> like I, I don't remember what well it was 32 bits so uh, 32 bit float which means when you try to look at the binary for it it's just bonkers because yeah. floats are not they don't work the same as the, the nice binary indeed they are very strange animals super messy so i think a solution that comes to mind is to look for the absence of your voice. How did you solve it? 
I didn't uh, because okay, I perfect. read up on on what it would take to solve it and was like, yes, this is digital signals processing. Ah, oh, exciting. Uh, which is math. Which I, I don't do math. That's not something I know. <laughs> oh, no. It's like I can't read a, an algorithm or a, no, I can't read a math function and go, yeah, sure, I can implement that. Most of the time I can't because I would have to first learn to read math. Yeah. So I would still love to play around with this. And if you know your digital signals processing, we should we should experiment. But one challenge is, of course, that you need to decide, like, okay, what period of time am I looking at? Yeah. Because you're doing a live thing. So the levels of the microphone can change. The way the person talks into the microphone is very likely to change. The background noise can change. Yeah. So... You don't want to lock yourself to like, no, five. Five is the level of <laughs> silence. And we decided this on startup when it was absolutely dead quiet because nothing was started yet. So you needed to be adaptive. And I've I've seen what happens with like adaptive audio systems, um, or rather I've heard it. Like when a friend leaves their headset on the table and walks away from Skype or Discord, goes off into the kitchen has a brief conversation with their significant other, conversation continues. The microphone is like, mm, not a lot of sound right now. Maybe if I increase the gain, maybe I'll <laughs> pick up a human voice. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm picking something up. Okay, yeah, it's still very low. This is not a good volume for the others. More gain! <laughs> Until you get this really noisy background no- noise. Yeah. Plus a conversation from three rooms over. Yeah. Uh, it's a spy mic. Mute your microphones, people. And when the person comes back, they're so loud. <laughs> yeah, unless they talk as they approach the microphone, yeah. Yeah. I had the, or my father had the, the opposite problem with his intelligent recording machine, a H4 Zoom. Ancient by now. I still use it. It's quite good. I actually just bought an H4N Pro. Oh, yeah. Pro. So good. Um, yeah. I needed something that could be strapped to the camera, and that was one of the few ones that's like, oh, this has two XLRs and uh, actually has uh, threading for, for mounting. Ah, oh, sweet. I This one doesn't have threading for mounting, but... Or maybe it's... Oh, I think... An accessory followed it so you can strap a threading for mounting onto the recording device. I'll have to show you someday. It's has a really good Yankee look to it. And my father made it even better by putting a, a small piece of doormat between this thing and the zoom so it wouldn't vibrate as much when things people were walking around anyway uh so uh he recorded something using this device uh they were i think they were were playing traditional yes good stuff louis armstrong all that you know and after a song and this device stands in the middle of the audience to get the best room acoustics so after a song everyone applauds and the device goes oh my goodness this is the loudest i've ever heard and reduces the gain 
until almost nothing because applause. And after the applause, they start playing another song. But the device doesn't go, okay, this is too quiet, let me increase the gain. It goes, ah, this is a good gain. I will keep this for the rest of the concert. <laughs> I don't know if I ever figured out how to turn off the auto gain. I think it did, but it was very, yeah. <laughs> they meant well, those who programmed it. Yeah, yeah. Auto is a dangerous thing. Absolutely. I've had had trouble with with cameras in that regard as well, where um, it's like, oh, well, you're waving your hands around, so that must mean that those hands are important. <laughs> Shifting from my face, back to my face, back to my hands, back to my face. <laughs> and uh, like my cameras have very nice like um face and uh eye tracking which you can turn on unfortunately you cannot turn that on while recording in 4k if i knew this was a limitation of this particular camera i would maybe have splurged for the slightly more expensive one that could do two things at once yeah but like i like my camera but that is a real limitation oh, fortunately there are also ways to kind of tune it to be resistant to switching and also to set like this is the region you should look for focusing cues in. This is where my face is, actually. It works. Um, but yeah, auto can be, can be weird. Auto can be dangerous. 